we are going to continue with uh, talking about the day of the Lord. Um, and just as kind of a way of uh, housekeeping, uh, I think we have this week, and then when there's uh, next week, um, I'll be teaching because Dr. Master is uh, out still. And then I think the last uh, Sunday in May is actually an all, I think it's when we start the all adult Sunday school together um, out in the gym. I could be wrong on that, but uh, I think that's the case. So I think we're actually done with Isaiah for now and hopefully resume it again in the fall. Um, so last week we started looking at um, the this concept of the day of the Lord, uh, which is an important phrase in the prophets, uh, especially in the minor prophets, but even in some of the um, so-called major prophets. And um, it's used, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used in in various ways. It always refers to uh, some type of judgment, right? But it also often has some note of rescue or uh, restoration or salvation for God's um, true people. And uh, kind of the reason that we went into this study is because we first saw it actually back in Isaiah uh, chapter 13 in verses 6 and 9. There's a section in Isaiah where he's uh, prophesying judgment on Babylon, um, but also hints at judgment on the other nations in, in verse 11 of Isaiah 13. Uh, so it often has the idea of judgment of Israel's enemies. Um, Jeremiah 46.10, uh, which Pastor Phillips will get to at some point, it uses the image of a devouring sword to talk about judgment on Egypt. But we also uh, noted when we looked at uh, the book of Amos a few weeks back, uh, Amos was one of Isaiah's contemporaries, um, prophet about the same time, uh, we noted that sometimes the day of the Lord actually will bring judgment on God's people themselves, right? So uh, Amos, in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, talks about uh, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of, of darkness and not light. Um, when he says, woe to you who, who are you know, wanting the day of the Lord, because the common conception in Israel was that the day of the Lord would bring judgment on all their enemies, but not on them. Uh, and Amos says, actually, it's going to be judgment on you as well because of your own sins. Um, and God will use Assyria, and does use Assyria to judge the nation of, uh, of Israel. Uh, and then we saw last week that Joel uses this phrase um, a few times. So in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord. Alas for the day of the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And the initial usage is actually referring to a uh, locust plague that happens in in, um, in uh, Judah, Israel and Judah. And it really, though, it is an actual historical locust plague, I think, that, that happens. But it's foreshadowing a greater judgment uh, that then is talked about in chapter 2. And then we're going to see here, we'll look at chapter 3 today, that it goes on to uh, culminate in this final judgment of all of God's enemies. So, so really, in Joel, we see actually the broadest usage of this phrase, uh, the day of the Lord. It's, you know, in, in this one book, we see sort of three different, um, three different horizons almost that he's talking about. There's the immediate locust plague, there's a coming judgment, and then uh, there's a further final judgment that will happen, and God will rescue his people in the midst of that final judgment. 
So we're going to pick up at chapter end of chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 30. Um, so Joel chapter 2, verse 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So we have this kind of apocalyptic uh, imagery that seems to be referring to some future uh, event involving salvation from judgment for those who call on the Lord, right? Um, and we know, of course, looking back now uh, from our perspective, that this is not just Israel that he's talking about, but it's actually anyone, uh, as Paul says uh, in, in Romans, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, not just Israel, will be saved. So then in Joel chapter 3, uh, he goes on to say, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So uh, we get a slight tweaking of the phrase, the day of the Lord, right? Notice in verse one, he says, in those days, but, but he's... Joel is referring back to, or the Lord through Joel is referring back to uh, that same time, the, that, the day of the Lord. Um, and he's saying that when the day of the Lord comes, he will restore uh, his people. Um, this valley of Jehoshaphat uh, is actually not a known geographical place. So they don't, there's no valley with that name uh, in the area. But the name does mean Yahweh has judged or the Lord has judged. Um, so it's probably meant to be taken symbolically. Um, but it is this, this, uh, picture of all of the nations, <coughs> excuse me, all of the nations being gathered, um, into a valley surrounded by mountains, uh, on every side. And they're going to be judged. Why? Because of the way that they treated God's people, right? I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So the immediate uh, reference to this obviously is, is those who have um, carried off God's people into exile. But ultimately, the, the broader horizon again um, is referring to anyone who is opposed to God and to his people. Um, I mentioned last week, that sometimes it's helpful to think of uh, the fulfillment of prophecy as almost like a, uh, a mountain range. And if you are at the front of a mountain range and you're looking at it, you know, there's these mountains going back. But if you're standing here looking at it, you really only see sort of one mountain in front of you. But if you go, you know, around to the side of it, of the mountain range, you realize that there's actually multiple mountain peaks, right? Um, and some of these prophecies have, in some sense, multiple fulfillments. Um, and this, I think, is one of those 
where there's ultimately a final fulfillment that we'll see is talked about in Revelation. Um, but there's also these fulfillments that happen throughout history where the Lord does judge uh, certain nations or peoples. And one of them actually uh, we'll see right here starting in verse 4. So he says, what are, you, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, ultimately, um, well, I should say historically, this does get fulfilled, um, what, what he prophesies in verse 4, because both Tyre and Sidon uh, were defeated and destroyed in about the 4th century B.C. Um, so there is a sense in which this happens again, historically, and yet it's pointing uh, further to the, the final judgment. And we'll see that become a little bit more clear here in the next section, um, 9 through 16. Um, just another in little interesting note, kind of some of the, the way that these prophets used uh, words to play off of each other. The same word in verse 1 for uh, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem is also the same word. Uh, in verse 4, when God says, uh, if you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. So uh, there's this connection here. The Lord's going to restore or return the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and he's going to return the payment uh, that God's enemies had made on uh, on his people back to them. In the sense, he's going to punish them back or return it to them, restore it to them. Um. Before we go into the next section, any questions so far at this point? All right. Um, so then we get this poetic language that actually gives us the scene of what's going on in the Valley of Judgment uh, when, um, when the people, the nations are gathered. Uh, and he says, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. So he's saying, gather your people for a battle, which is kind of interesting uh, because we're going to see in a minute, there is no actual battle. <laughs> but he's saying, get your armies ready as if you could fight against the Lord. And then we get this really interesting reversal in verse 10, the reversal of what we saw in Isaiah 2, 5 and Micah 4, 3. Right? If you remember those passages where it talks about um, beating your swords into plowshares, because basically there's going to be peace. There's no need for any implements of war, right? Here, actually, it's the reverse. He says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. So the idea is you need every implement of war you can get. In fact, you're going to have to take your gardening and agricultural tools and turn them into weapons. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. So the idea there is everybody needs to come to the battle. <clears throat> Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So the Lord is uh, gathering his warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So there again, it's, it's again, it's the valley of uh, God's judgment. Um, but then notice he says, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. 
so there's really not actually going to be a battle uh, in some sense. The Lord is already going to just sit down and he's the judge. Um, he is going to carry out justice on them. Um, and then verse 13 compares it to uh, a great harvest. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. So the idea here is that um, the judgment will be great because their evil has been great. Uh, and I think it's, it's um, the language here is also pointing back to uh, back in chapter 2 of Joel, so 2, um, 24, where he's talking about restoring um, his people. He says, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Uh, so the restoration to his people will be overflowing, just as, in this case, in verse 13, the judgment on um, those who are opposed to the Lord will also be overflowing. Uh, because their evil is overflowing. So, um, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Um, sometimes this verse is a little bit misunderstood, and people think that this is talking about the nations have the opportunity to decide, you know, will they follow the Lord or not? I don't think that's the case. The decision here is actually the decision of the Lord, and he's already made it. Um, the idea here is that uh, this is the valley of God as judge deciding what the outcome will be uh, against these uh, enemies of his, and it's going to be a decision for, for judgment. Um, it's, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 27, right, which says that it's appointed unto man to die once and after that. Uh, comes judgment. So their time has passed. Um, it's at this point too late for them to to turn back. Um, they had their chance at some point, but it's gone now. And the Lord is going to judge uh, and render his verdict. Um, we see the apocalyptic language in verse 15 again. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Uh, and then we, in verse 16, get some... Um, picture that's a little bit similar to what we saw at the very beginning of Amos, uh, where the Lord is compared to a uh, lion who is roaring. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So notice that last little bit, right? Uh, there are people that are spared from this judgment, right? people that will be protected from it. Uh, and it's the Lord's um, people, his people, uh, a stronghold to the people of Israel. But we know ultimately, again, from Paul's writings, that the true Israel is all those of any generation, from their time to our time, of any nation, right, who trust in the Lord, um, who believe in the Messiah, um, they are the ones who will be saved. And then we get this picture uh of God dwelling with his people in verses 17 to 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, 
And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a mountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Um, So again, the idea here, uh, similar language to the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Similar language, right? The Lord is, is with his people, and they will know, and the whole world really will know, right, that the Lord is uh, is God. <clears throat> and again, there's um, in that day, in verse 18, which harkens back to the day of the Lord. Uh, so this will all ultimately be um, culminated at the end. Um, and we see the the description in verse 18 is kind of, again, a, the opposite of the desolation that had been described earlier in chapter 1 when the locust plague came through. Um, there's blessing, there's uh, life-giving water, uh, almost um, language similar to Ezekiel 47, which talks about the water uh, flowing out of the temple, and then that's quoted uh, or alluded to, I should say, in Revelation 22. Um, so, the... I mean, and it's kind of belaboring the point a little bit, but we've seen this pattern over and over again, right? Throughout Isaiah, throughout Micah, throughout Amos. Uh, but it's a, a pattern of the warning of judgment to come for sin. And, and we saw that for many of uh, Israel's enemies, the judgment was going to come uh, because of the way they treated other people, for their cruelty especially. Uh, for Israel and Judah, they were judged especially for their idolatry, their their abandonment of the Lord, their sort of outward uh, formality in their religion without having any um, heart in it. Uh, but ultimately, there is judgment coming for all of these sins. And yet, there is always that hope of uh, forgiveness. There's always that hope of restoration and, and God's gracious salvation to anyone, everyone who believes in him, Right. So um, you could say in some ways that, that chapter 2, verses 30 to 32 are kind of the uh, theme verses for Joel, and even in some sense, theme for all of uh, the minor prophets, right? Um, that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, all right, any questions on Joel? Because I do want to also look at the book of Obadiah. Is a, it shouldn't be very long because it's a short little book. But any questions on Joel? No. All right. So flip over just uh, a couple pages past Amos and into Obadiah. We get uh, just 21 verses. Um, and a uh, little bit of background. So for some of you that weren't here last week, a little bit of background on Joel. We don't know actually a whole lot about Joel. Uh, All we were told about Joel is who his dad was. Uh, He's the son of Bethuel, but we don't really know who that is either. Um, We can guess maybe about some things when it was written, but actually that's not clear either. Uh, Obadiah, though, you'll notice uh, the introduction we get just says the vision of Obadiah, and that's it. 
So we know even less about Obadiah than we knew about um, Joel. Uh, his name, Obadiah, means uh, one who serves Yahweh. So that could be true of a lot of people, right? Um, but we do know he gets a vision. Uh, so the Lord shows him something um, and gives him this, this message to bring. Um, the message, well, let me say first, when, when do we think Obadiah might have given this prophecy? Again, it's not real clear. He doesn't give us, you know, kings that were reigning at the time, uh, like Isaiah does, um, like Micah does, like Amos does. Um, we just have to kind of guess from the, the context of, of what he says. And it sounds like uh, from verse 11... On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. We'll get to who the you is in just a minute. That sounds like uh, Jerusalem has already been conquered, which happened in 586 BC. So he's probably uh, prophesying after 586, um, but it's probably before 553 BC. The reason for that is because you'll notice he says in verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And he's going to go on, uh, we'll see in a minute, and prophesy a judgment on Edom because of the way they treated Judah when Judah was conquered. And Edom uh, had a campaign against them uh, in 553 from Babylon. So probably somewhere between 586 and 553, uh, Obadiah gives this message. And it's specifically a vision of judgment on uh, Edom, which we saw Joel also actually mention <clears throat> at the end of chapter three. But it's it's because, as I had of the because of their treatment of God's people um, when God's people were in trouble. But there's also again a message, just like that pattern we talked about, right? There's a message of restoration for God's people. Those always go hand in hand. So um, if the date is correct. So if it is during that time period, this is a pretty bleak, uh, bleak time historically for, um, for Israel and Judah. So Israel has been, uh, the northern kingdom has been in exile for uh, like 150 years or so, right? Um, and uh, Judah has probably just recently been, been taken off to exile in Babylon. And so the people are uh, scattered if you read the book of Lamentations, um, you get a kind of a picture of, of the feeling at the time. But there's big questions going on for them, right, as they're in exile. Um, do they even have a future as God's people? Um, because is, that, uh, is their future just completely right, gone? Um, are God's promises to bless the whole world through Abraham going to fail? Because it looks like it at this point, right? Um, how can they be a blessing when they're scattered all over and ruled by these pagan nations. Will those pagan nations ultimately triumph right, over God's people and rule over them forever? Um, and maybe the biggest question that some of them probably had is, does God even care about what's going on and what's happening? Because it doesn't, to their eyes, it doesn't look like he does, right? Um, and in some ways, as Christians, you know, we can even be tempted that way when we look at the world around us at times to think, does God even you know, care about what's, what's going on? Um, Obadiah's message, <clears throat> Obadiah's message is meant to show uh, that God does care and he 
will act to bring about judgment and justice. Uh, it may not be immediate. Uh, we don't always know exactly what it will look like, but he will at some point bring about judgment and justice. And he does care. Uh, and one of the lessons we need to take from all of these is not to trust our eyes or our ears in terms of what we see and hear around us, but we need to trust what God says in his word. That that's true, and we can stand on that. So first 15 verses, um, the you is in the singular, and it's pointed at Edom. And then we'll see in 16 through 21, uh, the you is um, in the plural, and it is addressing God's people. So um, first, uh, the first section here. Um, first, obviously, again, Obadiah is declaring the word that the Lord had given him, right? Um, and he's going to assemble the other nations against Edom. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So Edom was actually set pretty high up in the mountains. Uh, they, the, the country of Edom was um, southeast of, uh, of Judah. And a lot of their cities were up as far as like 5,000 feet above sea level with these little windy passages to access them, um, very inaccessible. Militarily, they were actually in a pretty good situation. Right? It would have been pretty difficult for someone um, to come and, and attack them. So they obviously feel very scared, right? Um, and they're proud. Notice he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. They're proud of, of where they live. They think might, you know, kind of highly of themselves, when in reality, the Lord says that he's going to make them small, among the nations. Um, if you just peek over at verse 12 and 13, he says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Um, do not gloat over his disaster, verse 13. So there's a sense in which uh, Edom was looking down on Judah um, and the Lord says that all, I'm going to make all the other nations look down on you. Um, I'm going to bring this, <clears throat> bring this back on your own head. Um, the verses five through seven are in uh, what some people call the prophetic perfect tense. So it sounds like it's a past tense as in it's complete, but it's actually talking about future events. So he says, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? So in other words, even thieves leave a little bit behind. Grape pickers leave a little bit behind. Um, no, there's going to be nothing left behind. Uh, when they come for you, Edom. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. So, uh, anybody know who the Edomites descended from? Esau, right? So, and that's why, uh, again, in verse 12, he says, do not gloat over the day of your brother, uh, right? The, the Judahites, Israelites, are descended from Jacob, who is Esau's brother. So there's a sense in which they really, uh, though they are not themselves, you know, God's chosen people, they're still related, and they should have been um, ones to help when Judah is in distress, and yet they actually took advantage of them. Um, verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. 
Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Uh, so it's the allies that the Lord is going to use. Edom's allies, are the, which at the time was Babylon. Um, he's going to use them to bring judgment and destroy Edom, just as Edom had helped, uh, had betrayed Jacob. Um, verses 8 and 9. Uh, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord. Now we don't get the phrase day of the Lord yet, but it is kind of hidden in there. We will see it in verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near. But here in verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Uh, Timon was one of Esau's grandsons, so may just be uh, referenced again to um, the whole people, or it could be referring to a particular region. But um, the idea here is their their uh, inaccessibility, their kind of ideal place is not going to save them, but neither are the people, the wise men, their leaders, who they might look to uh, to help them. They will not uh, be able to help them either. Uh, their mighty men will be dismayed. Uh, and this is why, starting in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So it could be that this is actually early on in the exile, and there's still opportunity for Edom to cease what they've been doing. Uh, which they've been taking advantage again of this situation. Um, they've been um, doing violence to the people. They've been going in and taking things for themselves rather than offering help and assistance, um, which they should have. So the present tense here again might might indicate that um, they still have time to repent and turn from what they're doing. Um, but then verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near, Upon all the nations. So now he's going to expand a little bit, uh, or at least hint at the expansion of this judgment, right? It's not just Edom who's going to be judged, though particularly they're the nation that's being called out, but it's anyone who is opposed to God's people. Anyone who is against God and his people will be uh, judged on the day of the Lord. And it's going to be retributive justice, that is, they're going to get what they deserved, or as you have done, verse 15, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Uh, judgment is often referred to as, as drinking from a cup in the Old Testament, and that's um, the illusion that we then see um, in uh, Christ's words in, in Matthew 26, right? When he asks that the cup should pass, he's referring to the cup uh, of, jo of God's judgment. Um, and then I'm just going to wrap up with 17 through 21. Again, we see 
similar to what we saw at the end of Joel, um, God's people are gathered to him. They're living under his rule. He is the king. It's going to end with uh, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Um, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Jacob a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Um, so, Obadiah is, is not saying that the Lord is not yet king, right? We know that the, the, the Lord clearly is king, but he's saying that the kingdom, uh, or God's kingship, in a sense, will be made clear to all. There's this future definitive manifestation of God's rule that will happen um, uh, on the day of the Lord, uh, ultimately brought about by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And what we see in, pictured in Revelation. Okay, just quickly, like, what does all that mean for us? Like, what kind of lessons can we draw now? Um, I already mentioned one of them, but whatever our circumstances look like, God's word is true, right? And we need to trust we need to trust that. We shouldn't trust in anything else. Uh, whether it was, you know, Israel before their fall, when they had one of their most prosperous times since the reign of Solomon. Um, whether it's Edom up in the cliffs, trusting in, in where they live for their military uh, protection. Um, whether it's uh, the Israelites when they're despairing because of where they're at in the exile and wondering how is the Lord going to bring about his promises. Um, Those are all times when we're tempted to trust in what we see around us, right? Or the way things appear to us. And there are all times in which uh, what was actually true was the complete opposite, right? The Lord was about to judge Edom when they felt very safe. Um, Israel felt prosperous and thought things were wonderful. And the Lord was about to judge them uh, because of their pride and their arrogance and their idolatry. Um, the Israelites, when they're despairing, the Lord is going to rescue them and, and bring them back uh, and save them. Um, that's one lesson. Second, uh, second thought I had is just as I was reading these descriptions of judgment, it's really should, I think, move us to pray that the gospel would go forth and that the Lord would save people because those are terrifying descriptions, right? To think about the coming judgment of the Lord. Um, and and I, I think, and I I think it's appropriate to to take away from that that we ought to be um, sharing the gospel with people around us, warning them of this judgment to come. It's going to get it's going to be awkward to have those kinds of conversations, and it's going to get more and more awkward uh, as the culture moves further and further away from any sense of sin uh, and judgment. Um, but it's really actually quite terrifying to to read these descriptions and think about this is what will happen to those who are unbelievers who don't trust in Christ. Um, so I hope that it would move us to pray for the gospel to go forth and, and people to respond to it. Um, and then it's also a reminder that justice will be accomplished. There is a day of reckoning that is coming. Um, 
God's enemies will be punished. Um, those who are enemies of God's people, ultimately, uh, will, will be punished if they don't turn. Um, the Lord will save some of them, as he did Paul, right? Paul was a, uh, an enemy of the early church, and yet the Lord redeemed him. But there are others, you know, when you, when you even read the news today about the, just the, the massive sins that are plastered across the headlines, uh, you read history and think about these horrible people, um, all of those things will be made right one day, and we can take encouragement from that. All right, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we, it's hard to read sometimes these images of judgment, uh, and yet we know, Lord, that that is what sin deserves, and we thank you especially that, that Christ uh, took that judgment for those of us who, uh, who believe in him, uh, who are united to him by faith. We thank you that he bore your wrath on the cross for us, and we pray that you'd help us to take that message to others, to warn uh, of, of coming judgment. These are big, uh, big things, Lord, that um, deserve uh, careful thought, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would um, help us uh, to, to give the message of hope that is also found in the midst of all of these messages of judgment. Help us to point others uh, to uh, the truth that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. Would you bless your time of worship now? We pray that it would be honoring to you in Christ's name. Amen.